and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. We know that you are going to love this episode, but before we get to today's guest, we just want to let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. It really does mean a lot. For those of you that are here for the first time, welcome. For those of you that have listened to a lot of the episodes, we appreciate you continuing to put your trust, your faith, and ultimately your time and and spend your time with us at the podcast. So thanks for being here and thanks for intentionally setting your mind to learn, to grow, and to be your best self. The other way that you can help us out is by going to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you'll see how you can subscribe to the show by giving us as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. It really does help us continue to expand our reach and to grow this thing out. Uh, We really appreciate those that have already subscribed. And if you haven't, please go over there and try to help us out if you are able. Also, go over to iTunes, uh, write us a review. It helps us as we continue to expand this thing. Uh, That's the other way that you can help us. And the last way is just share it with a friend. So if you like this conversation, you think it'll be helpful for one of your friends, share it on social media, send an email, send a text, whatever you need to do. Uh, We do appreciate the growth of the podcast, and it isn't thanks to you, the listener. So keep it up. Now to today's guest, Daniel Stillman is somebody that I got introduced to by one of our past guests, Bob Bourdon. And Bob said, hey, Daniel is somebody that I actually met when he was teaching, when Bob was teaching him at Harvard. And he said, Daniel's doing some really cool work on design thinking and designing conversations uh, for companies and for individuals. So Daniel works as a coach, as a teacher, as a workshop leader, a mentor, a facilitator, a writer. He really does a lot of different things, but at its core, he will talk about being a designer. And at his core, that is really who Daniel is. He is a designer. He's a design thinker, and he helps others design their companies themselves to try to help them unpack 
what it is that they have envisioned for themselves and where is it that they want to go. And then he will facilitate them to help them develop strategies and structures and ways in which they can create that. So before getting a master's in industrial design at Pratt in Brooklyn, he got a degree in physics and did crazy things like manage a secret lab on the roof of a natural history museum, which he'll get into, he'll touch on in this conversation. But he also led university research acquisitions outreach for a medical venture fund. So he'll also touch on his work yeah, being an entrepreneur and also playing in the venture space. Uh, he's been a design strategist and he founded and exited startups, and now he travels the world teaching design thinking to teams and organizations, helping them be more mindful and intentional, there's that word, at work. So Daniel will talk about the intention that he brings into workshops, the intention that he brings as far as what he tries to pull out of those that he serves, and at the end of the day, he believes that design means making things better tomorrow than they are today, and that is shared vocabulary, and he'll really uh, try to dissect that for you, and you'll hear that he's really trying to lay science on an art and trying to blend those together so that teams and organizations have the power to change how they work and work better. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Daniel. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Daniel Stillman. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the Intentional Performers Podcast. Really excited to have you and to chat a little bit about facilitation, design thinking, industrial design. I mean, you have an interesting journey into the work that you're doing now. So I think we're going to hopefully unpack a lot of that. And just a shout out to Bob Bordeaux for connecting the two of us. And I was actually with Bob last week uh, in Boston and got to see him in action. And uh, Bob's been a guest on the podcast and is somebody who I, I know both of us have a lot of love for and a lot of respect yeah. for. So shout out to Bob. Yeah, I learned a lot from Bob. And he's also just, a, he's a great podcast guest too, isn't he? He really is because he... Uh, he has these stories that he can tell. Um, he uses story and leverages story in his workshops and in, in the work that he does. And for those that haven't listened to Bob, Bob is a negotiation expert at, at Harvard and also does a lot of private work as well. And, uh, you know, after our conversation, we had more meaningful conversations even after that. And we're continuing, yeah. continuing to explore different ways that we can do things together. So uh, shout out to Bob for sure. Yeah, you know, when I, because I talk about like, we, we we all try to help people, but very few of us have gotten to work on like helping Palestinian and Israeli youth like have better uh, conversations together. Like that's that kind of like that's a trump card where you're like, here, here's what I've worked on in my work. <laughs> Peace in the Middle East. And, and it's actually like weirdly a great transition to get back to you. So uh, as much as we both love Bob, he's not here. So <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about you. Yeah, we and, have a whole episode about Bob. Okay, fine. All right. And I think, I think what you were just referencing is the art of facilitation and yeah. how can you facilitate people to come to an agreement? And so maybe that's a good place to start. When did you start getting interested in facilitation and, and start thinking about you know, how does this work? How can I become an expert at that? Just walk us back as far as where you started with facilita facilitation in mind. Yes. Well, I, I know that, like, honestly, I think I would take it all the way back to my childhood um, because my um, my mom and my dad, when we when they were younger, were like, you know, maybe they fought a little. Let's just say there was, there, you know, we they weren't, they still love each other very much. They're still together, but there's there was conflict in the house. Um, and my, my brother was, uh, you know, struggled in school and they would fight over whatever they had to do about him. And I would literally just put myself in the middle 
of whatever thing was going on and just like hold up my hands and be like, can we just stop for a second? Like, can we just literally, and I was the youngest in the family. I was the baby of the family. And I was like, can we just like come, like, can we just chill the F out for a second? And can we like regroup and focus on what our real goals are here? I don't think those are the, that was the language I used, but I really wanted there to be peace. Like I wanted there to be like peaceful dialogue, peaceful discussion. How and, old, how old were you when you have that memory first occurring? Um, my brother was probably in high school. So, and I'm, I'm like three years younger, two, two years and nine months younger than him. So like, I probably was like, you know, 13 or 12 or something like that. I've just been like, okay, maybe even 10, just being like, okay, look, like, can we just, can we talk about this differently? Can we lower the temperature and just talk about the, you know, what Bob talks about is like talking about the, the process more, you know, talking about the content, like a little bit more coolly. And, so I definitely and, have that memory of being like, let's just take it down a notch. And you said mom and dad just argued, uh, but they're still together. Oh, yeah. So, so was that just their nature or was that the way that they just handled um, adversity what, what, or conflict? What my mother and father like to joke about is that they never uh, disagreed about the existence of absolute truth, the just the who is in possession of it. <laughs> take that i can see your, your eyes are reeling you're like that's a very weird way of putting it my parents were both very like idealistic very passionate people and i think they were also like you know like many parents were young when they got together and learning about dynamics also like my father was uh, and still is and he might listen to this so i'm okay saying this like you know not so good with his emotions not so good with communication and i think i learned over time uh better ways of communicating right um in my in my life and in my professional life i think for me there was the 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 walls that i hit when i when i went to design school and i started working with clients and i realized that it wasn't about it wasn't about me having the best idea and convincing people of it it was about a group of people the clients the customers uh, and us, the designers and the strategists who they were paying, all of us coming up with something together because it didn't matter if I came back with this amazing research and was like, here's this great idea we've had from the customer. They'd be like, that's interesting, but it wouldn't really um, match their mental model. They would just go away. They would take that report and it would disappear. And I think I started to realize like, we have to be doing this together. We have to be talking together more. We have to be collaborating more. And that's when I started getting into like the workshop thing. I don't think I knew that workshops were a thing. I started to see some people. I, I, I attended some, some, some events that I got to see what facilitation looked like when you actually controlled the flow of information and decided what people were going to talk about the customer. And then we were going to talk about trends and then we're going to talk about goals. And then we were going to talk about, we broke up the conversation to these little pieces. And at the end we were like, Oh, okay. So like, what if we did blank? Suddenly we've got like amazing ideas. Whereas before we were all in all these different directions. And I started to take that into my, into my professional work, like breaking the conversation up and focusing people's attention on the right things at the right time. So I want to direct your attention back to something else. Yeah, uh, sure. 
which is, I just want to connect the dots and try to understand your journey a little better, which is, so you're growing up in this house, brother's three years older, uh, you're the baby of the family. uh, And at around 10 years old, you're already starting to be like, hey, hold on. Like you're taking on a different role than the other three members of your family. Do you think that was something that was nature or nurture or something that you designed? Why were you different than them and their approach to challenges? That's a really good question. I mean, my my dad would say my dad is super into astrology and my parents like raised me with talking about the fact that I have like Libra rising and the Libra intentionality is for balance. So, you know, my I think my dad would probably say it's it's nature. Um, But I think I would also like to think that there's some nurture in that my parents did teach me that everyone is worthy of respect and attention. One of the things that I've realized now in my work, the, the, the sort of this fundamental idea that everyone is allowed to speak and everybody is worthy of being listened to. Right. And, and that goes for me and for whoever I'm talking to. I think when you watch two people getting heated, we're like, well, you just listen to me for a second. You're like, well, okay. Yeah. But like, that other person probably feels exactly the same way. And, and so did, I, I, did you, I think, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. Did you take on that role outside of the house as well uh, in school and social settings? Peacemaker? Yeah. yeah I, you know, it's funny. I think, um, I can't think of any specific in- instances of that in my, in my friend, my friend groups. I uh, think about it. It was really just in the, in the, in the family, family setting. And are you, how do you deal with confrontation now? Like, how do you, how do you think about confrontation and how do you deal with it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think now I similarly try to slow things down. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday where he, he said this amazing phrase. He's like, most people have communication styles that don't actually deliver them the goals that, we, that they intend. I like, I wrote that down on a piece of paper because <laughs> it's, it's a very fundamental idea. You're like, are you is what you're doing getting you what you need and what you want? And so in a way, just slowing people down and saying, okay, like what's the real goal here? And are we working towards it? Or are we not working towards it? I love that because I think a lot of times we just do what either our gut or our mind tells us to do. And then we just communicate that way. But this notion that we can actually shift how we communicate. I know for me, it's pretty profound because when I was in grad school, our teachers used to have us write down, what's one thing you want to get better at uh, during the the semester? And I would always write, I want to become a better listener. And the reason reason I would write that is because I knew that in order to do my job once I graduated, everybody was telling me that you have to be a really good listener. I I had never thought of myself as a good listener. And my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, could definitely confirm that. However... (laughs) However, one of the things I realized, and it's been a journey that I still go through, is that, you know, from a young age, I had like the gift of gab and I could talk and I could speak and I could go fast and I could put things together. Um, but to your point or to that person's point, was that getting me to where I wanted to go and the outcomes that I desired? And I can't say that it always was. Sometimes yeah. it did. Um, but I think it's like a, a good pitcher in baseball has to have a fastball, have to have a curveball, a changeup. You know, if you just use a fastball at a time. Yeah. But so when you talk about communication strategies, most of us don't actually know what the, what the fastball and what the curveball are. When you say listen better, like, what does that mean? Your ears aren't something you don't have ear flaps, right? You don't have like, like with eyes, like we think we can look better by like peering 
which I don't think actually makes us look better. To look better, you need to go to an art museum with the uh, with the painter, right? The painter's going to see stuff you're not going to see. They're going to look at line and form and color in a way you're not going to. Plus, they know about the history. And so, when you this and this is for me, like I'll just connect these dots for me. Like when I started in uh, my first degrees in physics, and so I think I was very much interested in first principles and how things work. And so when I got to design, I went to a school where they were very much into the Bauhaus tradition, which is like some, actually some kind of freaky stuff. If you look up the Bauhaus people, they were very kind of like esoteric and spiritual and they would study color and curves. Like I literally, we would, you're like, okay, this curve, let's, let's make this curve with wire. And you're like, is it a fast curve or is it a slow curve? Like, is it getting faster or is it getting slower? Is it supporting itself with its own curvature or does it need another curve? And that's what industrial designers, like they look at physical objects and they go, okay, is it a good design? And if not, I know how to make it better based on like my fundamental understanding of how physical things work. Same thing when I worked in interaction design, you show an interaction designer an app and they can go, you know, this doesn't handle um, error management well. It doesn't match, match the mental model of the customer. Like the typography doesn't, you know, support the context it's going to be. They can break it down. And here you and I are designing all these conversations day by day, um, you know, sessions with our, with our coaches, workshops with teams. And I was doing stuff that worked. I was copying things from other people that I thought worked. And I would not be able to tell you with as much precision why it worked as I could with all the other things that I was doing. And so when I say listen better, well, how do you listen better? You're like, okay, well, actually I can tell you now, like active listening. You're like, how do you do active listening? You're like, there's actually like, for me, a, like a mechanical way. Like I know the steps of active listening so that you know, when I'm stressed out and there's conflict, the very first thing I do is I throw my active listening switch as like my safety, as my safety mechanism, because it gets me out of trouble and it makes sure that I'm listening 100%. How do you do that in the moment? How, in that moment? Like, yeah, if you're emotionally hijacked or frustrated or stressed or tense, how do you in that moment put on that switch? And I'm asking yeah. for a friend, right? Just for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, if I was, if I could talk to your friend, I would say to him, um, it's, it's really just this idea of like, is anything I'm going to say, make this better? Do you know what I mean? Like the classic thing is like, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Maybe you've never heard that. No, I have. I have. <laughs> I'm thinking about the question you said earlier. So may I, I, you know, is, is this going to help? Is it, are you asking yourself that in that moment? Or like, I, I'm trying to get inside to really yeah, understand. Yeah. Well, I think there's this moment where I'm looking at the physics of it, where I'm like, okay, we've hit a wall or things are going down. And I've been to the point where you're like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. Like you try to fix it by doing something. And instead, so I, there's really three options. I think there's maybe three options for everything. I've been, I've been working on the book and it seems like there's three options. Oh, there's four for some. You're like, okay, I can uh, roll things back and say, oh, like that thing I said, I'm sorry. You know, or, oh, wait, where did it go wrong? And like, let's go, let's, let's, can, can we just like go back to when things were good? Like, that doesn't work. Um, 
we can try to push things forward and say like, okay, like how can I um, apologize for what I just said or like make them understand my perspective. Sometimes just like holding the moment very still, which you do, you're like, hey, well, let's go back to when you were 10. Like, tell me about that moment right there. Let's, let's hold the needle on the record and just move it back a little bit back and forward and see what's going on there. And active listening does that. I think it kind of freezes time. Instead of trying to move the conversation forward, you actually slow it down. Instead of trying to run away from the challenge of whatever just went awry, you're like, hey, wow, it sounded like you were really upset with me. Like, you know, let, let's go into that. Like, tell me what's going on there. And just really going into that moment. It's, it's much better than running away from it, I think. I just, it's attitudinal. It's interesting. Like, I have a tendency to get hijacked and get emotional um, with people that I love. Um, and I will sure. then, I'll put on my, whatever cape you put on to slow down, I put on a different cape to fight. And, yeah. Uh, like, there is definitely a fighter in me that I don't, I don't think I enjoy it, but there's some part of me that must because I go toward it. Yeah. And I go toward it in such a, such a, um, uh, I'm going to use the word fast, but there's probably a better word for that. Um, but I definitely don't go away from it. And yeah. um, I know what has worked in the past is that other people that I'm close with, if they go away from it, eventually I cool off and then there's an opportunity to have a better conversation. But I've yeah. always wondered, is there a better way to do that so that I'm, my communication is being heard and is not just sort of being seen as, oh, you know, that person is just hot right now. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I love what you said about just, can you both hold space for each other? And that's assuming it's binary um, in, in nature. But I'm just trying to think about how that impacts me and what I can learn from that, which is, you know, what can you do to ask, A, is this going to get you where you want? Like, what are you actually, what's the end game? Right here. And I think if you think about the end game, then you become more empathetic potentially and can put yourself in the other person's shoes to try to listen and try yeah. to understand. Am I making sense of what you're talking about? No, no, you totally, totally. So there's, there's a couple pieces I want to bring in here. One is um, always worth giving a shout out to, um, I don't know, maybe you have some books that you think everyone should read that change the way you think about stuff. For me, there's a book called Finite and Infinite Games, which um, kind of blew open my head as uh, a late teenager, early 20s person. And there's this idea that there are some games like soccer or baseball that happen in time and place. They start and they end. There's winners and there's losers. Elections are also finite games. Um, and I think we try to treat a lot of pieces of life as finite games that can be won or lost. But really, I, I believe that life is an infinite game, which you play to keep playing. Uh, the idea of an infinite game is you change the rules if it looks like the game is going to end. And friendship is an infinite game, right? Like I, I had a, a situation recently where a really good friend of mine, uh, we were all on this uh, canoe trip together, a couple of my guy friends. And I, something that I said about careers really set off a friend of mine. Like it set him off and we had not had like a hot, like he came at me and honestly, I wanted to hit him. I wanted to hit him, 
I wanted to, I, I had one of the cars that would driven us to this bowling alley we were at. Like, I want to take my car and I just wanted to get the hell out of there. And I felt all of that happen in one second. And I said to, and I, and I just knew that that was not going to, that running away, <laughs> that was not going to solve anything. And, and part of it is because the sense of like running away is kind of an end game and it's, it's, it's kind of an ending move, right? That's like being like, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm not playing this game. I'm not playing your game. But the harder move is, is the infinite move where you're like, okay, so now I'm in this uncomfortable situation where my friend's angry with me and, and everything's really tense. So what am I going to do? Am I going to run away from it? Or am I going to stay here and figure out what's happening? And that to me is like, what rules do I need to change in order to play this game? And the rule is like, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable. <laughs> so, but I'm willing in this moment to be like, all right, well, here we are. I'm uncomfortable. What can we do about that? Nothing. Great. I love this guy, this man in front of me, and I don't want to not be friends with him. So we're going to figure this out. And to me, that's the stakes. There's the small goal, which is feeling comfortable. And then there's this bigger goal, which is like continuing to love my friend and to, and to, find, a, and to find a pathway out of this. It's funny. Like, it, sorry, go ahead. It, I was showering this morning and <laughs> let people have that image for a second. But uh, <laughs> I was showering this morning and I was thinking about a relationship that I have. And I was like, yeah, for me, like my friends know who I am. Like there's, there's a lot of, there's a long resume of character that they know, you know, who I am. And I always joke with my close friends, like, yeah, there's nothing that you're really going to say that's going to really cause me to ever not, you know, be friends with you. There might be things that there might be actions, um, mm -hmm. but saying something like, I, I know your intentions and I know that they come with love. And uh, it is interesting though, there are moods or there are times where things are said and based on either the mood, the time, the delivery, the tone, the body language, sure. uh, whatever it might be, we can get offended and then um, get into our emotions and our feelings and then cause something to happen. Um, but it, it, it's, it's an interesting concept. I want to go back though with you because I'm hearing, I'm trying to also just understand you with this conversation. And so I'm hearing sure. physics, I'm hearing industrial design, and I'm hearing those and those are not necessarily where I would assume that you would end up today where you're talking about facilitation, coaching, um, you know, it sounds like organizational development work. Um, so I'm curious because physics sounds less, um, it sounds more finite. It sounds more black and white. <laughs> and you're now living in the world of possibility. And so um, I'm trying to understand, like, when did the transition occur for you if there if it was a transition, but how did you go from focusing? And you were talking about focus a lot earlier. Like what is sure. listening? It depends on what you're focused on. And mm -hmm. I think a focus is just directed attention. Like where are you directing the attention? Yeah. So when did you shift in your attention from sort of this uh, science to, yeah. to art that still is based in science? I don't want to say anything's yeah. all art, but facilitation, there's, there's an art to it. Uh, backed by some mechanics listening there's an art to it backed in what you're saying yeah yeah science. so I, I you know for me it's actually funny i mean this this is the narrative i tell about my life is but in new york city where i grew up when you apply to high school you can either um go to your local high school which for like uh you know a, a nerdy white kid like me probably wouldn't have been the best 
scenario that neighborhood I grew up in was kind of a normal, a little rough neighborhood. And so really the best option is to apply to one of the specialized high schools. And that means the science high schools like Stuyvesant Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, or the art high schools like LaGuardia. I applied to both. I got into both. Um, I wasn't a great artist, but I loved art. And so in what a way- kind, was, What kind of art? Oh, I was doing, well, so I I've, I've really into, was into origami. I was into sculpture. Um, like pretty much for any class, if I get extra credit for making a diorama, I made that diorama. Uh, so very three-dimensional thinker, um, which comes into my work now for sure. You know, space is a big part of facilitation and a sense of space and what's happening in that space. But for me, like, honestly, when I was in science stuff, I, I originally thought I wanted to teach. Um, I studied the history and philosophy of science. And I, I went to work at the Museum of Natural History because I thought I could get a backdoor into working in the exhibit department. I loved this idea of making a space where people could learn about something. And in a way, the work that I, I you know, for maybe the last six years, a lot of my work has been around teaching people mindsets and skill sets around design and design thinking. And I think that love of education and teaching people was something that was always a big part of of my makeup and so it wasn't a huge transition i mean it was like i went to grad school because i wanted to like make this transition into into maybe working in science exhibit design and spent two years in grad school what i what i learned in grad school was this idea of um human-centered design and uh customer collaboration and uh i also learned that the Ex the science exhibit world was the most slow moving political <laughs> universe possible. And so when I got out of school, I started working in um, consumer products consulting because that's where there was more action, there was more potential, more growth opportunity. And so that, that's, the, that's can, the arc for me. Can you unpack like what the differences are in looking at human centered versus non human centered design. Like, <laughs> well, sure. Because my, my whole life, as I look back on, on myself, it's always been human. Like, I, yeah. I think I've always really struggled on non human, which led me to struggle in science and math. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, and that's another podcast. But I, I think as I look at my career, what I still am most fascinated by is, is the human story and the human interaction and relationships. And that for me gets, that gets me alive. Like yeah. this well, conversation right now, I feel alive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, everything is a human problem, but I think some people are more concerned with other factors. There's a great book called to engineer is human. It's a, I love it. It's a, it's one of these great books. That's like not too long and really interesting. It's about a structural engineer talking about their, how they see the world. And a structural engineer's job is to make a bridge that doesn't fall, right? He's a designer. He's, 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 he's looking at these plans that someone makes and he's like, okay, how do I make this happen without over-designing it? Which means that like we spent too much to build it. And how do I make sure that I don't underdesign it? Like it falls down and kills people. Like, so he's a human centered designer. Like he doesn't want anybody to die, but, <laughs> but in terms of like his considerations are more about how strong is the steel and um, how, how can people build it? What makes this buildable or not? He's not considered, he doesn't, not that he doesn't care, but it's not his job to decide how beautiful it is and whether it uplifts 
the spirit. That's Renzo Piano's work. He's an architect. And he says, like, I want to make a bridge that when you look at it, takes your breath away. I want to make a bridge that will turn this city into a, a, a destination. Right. And that's a very it's they're not one's not better than the other. Renzo Piano needs this guy. <laughs> Right. Because he draws this thing and he has his own understanding of physics. And then he hands it to somebody. He's like, that's going to be hard. It's going to be expensive. And so that's the so that to me is where I learned another layer of human centered design, which is when you get a designer and a marketer and an engineer and a business person into a room and you try to like think of innovation, you try to push the the, the envelope on what a company is doing they're going to have a very different conversation. And this goes back to uh, what we're talking about, like, how do I listen? Well, everybody's got a different way of listening and everybody's listening for different things. Everybody's got different eyes. Like the classic thing about a chef sees the world as food. Well, an engineer sees the world as materials. The marketer sees it as, as markets and campaigns. So how do you get these four people to actually have one conversation that's focused on what the customer wants, what's best for the business, and what the team and the company can actually produce. That's a hard conversation to have. And, and I think it kind of, when I was a young designer, I was very lucky to work at an organization. We, we were doing a project with, it's been 10 years now, so I think I'm allowed to talk about it. S.C. Johnson was doing this massive design thinking rollout and every team had the same blueprint for innovation and every team was made up of an outside consultant team and internal engineer, marketing, design, business person. And we were all trying to like push the envelope and move the needle on these big ideas. Those are crazy conversations. And the only way it worked is because we all had this shared blueprint for what innovation meant. The CEO said, here's how we're gonna innovate. We're gonna do these four steps. Having, without having that shared language, it's impossible to have that conversation. Um, and that's what, in a way, what a, a facilitator tries to do is get a group of people to have a conversation that is not chaotic, is not moving all over. And you, you've seen what a, what a meeting can be like. We slow things down and we, we make sure that people roll through uh, certain steps in certain ways so that they have the quote unquote right conversation. There's a common thread that I'm hearing as far as all of your experience, which is you have to have the vision of where do you want to go? Do you sure. think that way or how do you think about vision? That's a really good question. I don't know, man. I, I feel like in a way I'm a facilitator because I, not that I don't have the creative vision. It's that um, it's, I, maybe it's that I get my juice out of watching other people's creativity, but making stuff is hard. <clears throat> it's hard. Um, it takes time. It takes effort. Um, it's very likely to fail. Um, and I've been an entrepreneur a couple of times and it, it takes an emotional toll. And for me, I think supporting other people is actually a place of just so much more emotional safety for me. I get, um, I, I can, you talk about like, um, you how a friend can never do anything that is going to, uh, make you not be their friend anymore. Well, when you get into, when you start putting money in the relationship, that can change, right? Then you become business partners and things can be, get a little sticky. And I've had that situation. Um, 
when I'm a facilitator and I know that it's their responsibility, but I'm responsible for the conversation, it means that I can um, hold myself, like there's like this one tiny layer that I can hold myself away from the challenge and not get too, too deep into it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and just to clarify for my friends that are listening, no, you, we cannot be friends by action. Um, but what I was trying to say is like, when we are at dinner, if you say something and it yeah. comes off the wrong way, like that's not going to cause us to have, you know, a riff, but an action item um, really, right. really can. So I, I would just separate those two. But back to what you're talking about is interesting is you're talking about, you know, the architect and the engineer and all these people that might be working on things, but they still might be human centric. Sure. And then when I'm, what I'm hearing you is when you, when I heard you say the emotional security for me to take a step back and actually serve as a facilitator rather than the vulnerability that it might take for me to put my whole self out there oh, yeah. um, as an entrepreneur, like I go back to values, which like, as I hear you talk, it's like, you know, one person might value humanity, another might value achievement, another might value security. And, you know, it's not that just because you value emotional security does not mean that you don't value achievement. Uh, you sure. still may, but the order security might come before achievement. And therefore that value would probably drive the decision making ahead of maybe achievement. So one of the things that I find is that when people are, um, having conversations and not really hearing each other. It's not that one person doesn't value the other thing. It's just that they value it less and it's lower on the totem pole. Yeah. And what's driving their decision-making is a value that's on top of that totem pole. And I find like in my conversations, that is at the core. Like I'm someone who hasn't always valued security mm. um, or safety. And yet I might work with someone that is their number one thing. Like they yeah. want to stay at their job uh, because they have to. And that's yeah. what they think. Whereas I might be more humanity driven because I have security. And that doesn't mean I don't value security. It just means yeah. that humanity is going to be the driver. So I would love to hear you unpack how you think about values and how if you're facilitating a conversation, you know that there's different order of values, how you think about that. Mm, that's interesting. Well, so like what's behind that idea is this idea that we're all built differently. And so the question is like, is that true? Like, are we all more different or are we all more the same? And one of the things that I've been working with for the last couple of years now is this idea of like, what is our operating system? And it's a, you know, this idea of software and rebooting your software and installing new software. People talk about this with organizational change a lot. Um, but I think for individuals, we have our own operating system that we live with. And I've been thinking to myself, like, what are a core set of values or um, approaches uh, to this way of working to, 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 to conversation um, that we can see and control? And, and I can sort of say like, oh, well, I approach conversation this way. And you approach that same value this other way. And like the classic example, and I'll go back to, I'll answer your question more specifically, but you know, when you go out with somebody, maybe uh, when, I, when I go out on a date with somebody, when I go out with my, my girlfriend, I actually like to sit next to her. I would much rather sit at a table side to side. And I know that there's a lot of people who'd rather sit across from the table so they can look at each other. And so this has to do with this idea of relational space, 
for me in my conversation operating system, I like to uh, have a different physical relationship with the person I'm talking to. And we, we have a, a, not an argument about this, but she's like, oh, you always like sitting side by side. I'm like, I feel closer to you. And she's like, but I can't see you. And so this, this kind of very, very fundamental difference where we have the same, there's one value, space, relation, like relational space. And we have two different ways of handling that. And we're literally on the, you call it like same planet, different worlds, right? Because we're, we're both like, oh, like I want to be intimate. And we're like, well, what do you mean? Like seeing you next to you. And so it's the same thing where you're like, well, look, I want to, in a conversation, you're like, I want to make sure there's clarity. You're like, well, okay, but I want to make sure there's no discord. And what we're actually talking about is the same thing. We want alignment, right? We want to make sure that we're agreeing on stuff. But to me, I want to agree on being nice to each other. And you want to make sure we agree on what we're going to do. Gosh, I had a client once. I usually sit across from my clients. Uh, yes. But I, but they were working on like a worksheet. So I came and sat next to them to see what they were working on. And the person said, hey, would you mind like not sitting here? And I was like, yeah, no problem. So I like back, back, backed off and sat across from them. Um, but to your point about space, like, and, and different cultures create different space as well, right? And yes. you study culture, the way that we operate in space. Um, but I, I love this notion of uh, trying to be where your feet are, like trying to be in mm -hmm. the present moment and trying to be in, in their shoes as well. So understanding and listening for understanding. Yes. Because it would have been easy for me to be like, why is that client so upset that uh, I sat next to them? And, and part of my job is to ask that question, right? Yeah, maybe yeah. There's, there's more to that story. Um, and look, there's a whole nother side that we're not touching, which is abuse and, you know, all, all kinds yeah. of you know, people might not want someone sitting next to them because they are afraid of someone being to the left or the right of them and they want to face them from the yeah. front. Um, so there's so much to consider. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, so, and the, and the best way to do this is to make it visible. So one of the things that I've learned, uh, so I've been building this conversation operating system model. And one of the fundamental ideas of a conversation is that a conversation is mediated by an interface. Like right now, we actually have like, <laughs> I'm looking at all the equipment that's between you and me. We're, you know, hundreds of miles apart and there's a laptop, there's two laptops and there's this piece of software, Zoom. Zoom is right now the interface for our conversation. The internet is the interface for our conversation. But we're having pretty close to a face-to-face -face conversation. There's like gigabytes of data going between us right now. The brain can only process like 120 bits per second. And so when you're having a conversation in the air, that's one type of conversation. Um, the classic example I give is like if you're bar hopping uh, with a group of friends and you're texting another friend to come and join you and they call you, that's really annoying. Uh, it's annoying because you're using the right in what you thought was the right interface for the job texting i'm sending you one piece of information here's the bar we're at and they want to call and like connect with you and you're like i'm at a loud bar this is the wrong you you should not be calling me hence i am angry with you <laughs> about you calling me and so i'm going to pull this back like the the interface of the conversation makes the conversation possible or it supports it or it doesn't support it 
When you're talking about most conversations where we're just face to face, every second there's information going back and forth and it's disappearing. So one of the biggest things I do is to make the interface um, what I call fatter, that it has more information capacity. There's actually, you talk about culture. I was literally yesterday reading about this. In Japanese culture, they actually have a word for, there's four words, but one, one of the, about space. And one is about the information capacity of the space. And so that's where you see these sticky notes behind me. This increases the capacity of our ability to have a conversation if we bring in these other interfaces. And so when you say, oh, we have all these different values, like let's all talk about our values. Let's go in a circle and everyone say what their values are. Well, that's actually a hard conversation to have. Like, do I even know what my values are? Can I just say them on demand? Like name, rank, and serial number. Like, Brian, tell me your values. Go, go, go. Tell them now. Give me your top four values. And we ask people these hard questions. And so that's where giving people a more designed interface. You say, here's this um, canvas. Here's a values canvas. Um, let's all talk about our values. And here's this circle diagram. And I'd like you to put like your top value in the middle and like put like five other values on the outside and uh, put, you know, here's this other rectangle and put these things there. And then let's put it up on the wall. And now let's talk about it. Well, now we can have the conversation about what all our values are. And guess what? They're there on the wall so that in five minutes when we want to refer to it, we can just point to it and say, well, so we're having a conflict now, but <clears throat> Brian and Daniel both felt like, you know, um, connection was a really important value for them. So we can actually point to it. We now have like the past is present. Brian and Daniel talked about how these are their top three shared values. And when they go off the chain, we can pull things back and actually point to them. Making the interface of the conversation more um, rich and durable is like, without a doubt, one of the best ways. It's the easiest way um, to change a conversation. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that because it actually goes back to Bob. Um, Bob Bordone and the very first uh, um, simulation I did at the Harvard Negotiation Project, I was just horrible. I was like, wow, I'm a bad negotiator. Like, I'm not good at this. I got backed into a corner. Uh, I revealed too much information because I'm a nice guy. And the second one, I was like, you know what? I'm going to just use paper. Like, I'm going to start writing things down. I'm going to use visual facilitation. That's what I'm good at. So I was like feverishly scribbling. And I freaked the guy out because he's a lawyer. They're not used to like, you know, visual capture. And then I realized I had to invite somebody that my third, my third and final, I was like, Hey, so I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to use the blackboard. I brought some sticky notes. I'm going to make a diagram of our, of our conversation as we go along. Is that okay with everybody? And everyone was like, yeah, that sounds like that would be really helpful. That'd be cool. Thanks. And we wound up all of us at the wall working out our, our challenges for the negotiation at the wall. And that seems obvious to a lot of us in a business context. But in a lot of contexts, sticky notes and whiteboards is not how they have a conversation. And so you have to, like, that's, that's how you build a better conversation. You have a better interface, you have a better approach, you have a better framework. So sticky notes, which you brought up, <laughs> yes. are, are literally, so people won't be able to see this, but over uh, Daniel's shoulder are, I'm trying to do the math real quickly, but there's probably like 25 or something mm -hmm. uh, sticky notes, uh, all different colors with different notes on them. And I grew up in a house where sticky notes were very prevalent. Uh, my mom, uh, when my younger brother was diagnosed with Lyme's disease, 
we came home from school and there was a sticky note on the front door that said, Michael, you have lives. So, <laughs> Oh um, my God. That's the yeah. inappropriate interface to communicate that information. I'm just going to throw that out and there. And for my mother's 50th birthday, we got her back by just, uh, they had a bunch of people, a bunch of our friends in a room, and we just sticky noted her with, with all of her. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, all of her uh, quirks, we'll say. But yeah, sticky notes were everywhere in our house. Uh, you know, take down the trash, uh, you know, put your clothes away you know, we're leaving at this time, whatever it might be. So sticky notes were a big part of my childhood. Um, and I, I still use them. Like if I were to show you over my shoulder, there are sticky notes on my desk. Yes. Um, so, uh, but, but for you, I, I noticed they're on your website. Um, you've got them behind your shoulder. You brought them in with you to a negotiation yeah. class. You're probably the only one that did that. So yeah. uh, why sticky notes? Like what is it about a sticky note that you think is so powerful? You know, it's actually really funny. Um, so you notice there's three different colors. The colors actually mean something. So this is one actually the biggest. So you talk about like looking at something closely and being an intentional performer. When I go in and I see some people do facilitation workshops, design sprints, they're just like literally take a pack of sticky notes and just hand everybody whatever. And the wall looks like what I call clown vomit. And it is a huge missed opportunity to actually allow a uh, green to mean something different than pink and pink to mean something different than blue. Each of these, uh, the Luma uh, uh, design thinking system, which I've done a lot of work with, they use this rose thorn bud framework to analyze current situations. Rose thorn bud is from the Boy Scouts of America. It's a design for, the, for a conversation to talk about what's positive, something that's negative and something that has potential. And so pink sticky notes are things that are positive about a situation. Uh, blue sticky notes are things that are negative and green sticky notes are things that have potential. I used this uh, for a visual coaching session with a group that I was working with. This helps me find out if I'm being too nice, too much of a jerk, or if I'm giving them enough forward thinking advice. So it's feedback for me. If we do this with a team and we're analyzing a customer experience and we talk about what's working and what's not working and what are some opportunities for change and we can move that up on the wall, we can start to step back and say, where are the hot spots? Where are we doing well? You know, where's the real potential? Um, and you can read it from a distance. Whereas if you just used clown vomit or all yellow sticky notes, you literally would not have the same uh, amount of information. And really what we're just talking about is making the interface of the conversation more rich. That's right? very so, cool. And, and you, you know, why are three by three sticky notes? Actually, so some design thinking people, I've had on my podcast people from, uh, the Google Sprint world, and they prefer three by five sticky notes. Like, can you believe, Brian, that there's actually like, I had a, like a 15 minute discussion with this wonderful lady on my podcast about why she prefers three by five over three by three. Like, that's how in, you talk about intentional performance. Like, she believes that that extra two inches makes it easier for her uh, participants to write out uh, a challenge statement that gives them a little bit more room to think and allows a better experience, like to that level. She's like, I'm going to hand them a three by five, not a three by three, because it's going to allow them to think better. Like so, that is, that, that blows my mind. That's the level of precision that some people think about with regards to facilitation, having an opinion about the right size of paper to give them. So I want to go back to you, which is 
what else do you intentionally do for facilitation or for your life uh, to make sure that you're showing up as your best? Oh, man. I mean, for me, I'm really into drawing. I'm not a great artist, um, but in my facilitation workshops, one of the things I teach people is to just sketch, to, to, like, to sketch out the sessions that they're going to do, to storyboard them out. And so that's one thing I do a lot is I just sketch out of the workshops that I'm doing so that I can visualize them. I, I, I literally, it's like scene by scene, what's going to happen. Like it's a play and I look at it once I draw it out and I, I look at it, I'm like, where are the gaps? Like, do I believe it? Can I, can I convince myself that this is a smooth arc? And sometimes I look at it and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get them from here to here. Like there's actually a piece missing. And then I sketched again with that piece back in there. And so for me, um, visual thinking and uh, like getting it out of my head, it's not enough to just make an Excel spreadsheet or to make a PowerPoint deck. Like those, those pieces of information, those, those pieces are very important. At some point I make those, but for me, the storyboard is the most important component of just visualizing what I'm going to be doing. And you do a lot of speaking. You do a lot of workshops. Uh, what will you do to prepare your mind and make sure that once you're on stage or you're in the room, uh, you're good to go? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I guess part of it is I think about their experience more than my own. Like I know that if they have a good time, I will have a good time. And so in a way, that's I, I, I make sure that I'm very much into giving uh, a group of people an activity as soon as possible. And this has the function of giving me a second to chill out. Because it's very, there's this moment when the workshop's starting where it can be like, is it going right? Like, am I doing enough? Are they with me? And if I just give them a job, like I just had a workshop on Thursday with a small group. And I was like, okay, draw how you fell in love with your favorite product. And they're like, what? I'm like, you heard me. You have a favorite, you have a product. You, I wanted you to draw how you fell in love with your favorite product. And they're like, oh, but I'm not a good drawer. And I'm like, that's okay. You can still draw that. And they go, all right. And then for three minutes, I, I, have, <laughs> I have room to breathe. Um, I'm, I'm in the room, they're doing something and I can relax. And so that's the way how I prepare is I make sure that there's something in the agenda that's going to give them something to do that I can feed off of, that they can focus on, that's gonna give me a moment to myself as quickly as possible. And in that, job. in that moment, what are you doing? In that moment, I am listening, I'm watching, and I'm breathing. Like I try to make sure that I remember, like you said, getting to the present moment, I feel my feet on the ground, I take a deep breath, and I realize that for like at least the next minute, there's nothing I can do. Do you do any breathing, any breathing exercises outside of uh, the room? Um, actually, no. I, I have a meditation practice, so I think I, um, you know, if I feel like my body is, is intense, I just, you know, I just come back into the present moment, and then I remember that I've got a plan, you know, and that at the end of the day, they are as 100% responsible for the, the result as I am right? Like I'm not doing this to them. We are coming together to make something happen. And so in a way I, 
I, I take a little bit of the responsibility off myself and be like, it's up to them too. It's not all on me. We're doing this together. So that actually is something that I'm really interested in. You do coaching, you do consulting, you do speaking and workshops. Yeah. Like the idea that it's, it's a collaboration and it's a partnership. Um, it's how a conversation. Do you, it's a conversation you, we're having together. Yeah. How do you think about that as it works with all of those different buckets that, or those different hats that you wear? Is well, that the same yeah. sort of mindset for each of them? I've tried to, like, as I've gone deeper into conversation, I realized that like you can't, it's one-sided conversations aren't interesting. Uh, monologues. Monologues aren't fun. And for, for either part of the, it's like, it's not fun for me. Like I did a webinar um, and I realized just how limiting the interface was. And I felt like, I felt like I was just, just in this echo chamber. And then I did another webinar where I actually had a conversation partner and they were better at, like they were helping manage, you know, the texting and everything. And suddenly it was like, okay, now I'm having a conversation. Now I'm getting some interaction. I have some feedback. Like literally, that's what conversation is about, is it's, it's feedback. And so with, in a way, like I, I think with all the other things I do, it's a question of what is the interplay between me and the other person. Daniel, did you see Denzel Washington's uh, show on Broadway that came out? It was a couple of months ago. I don't know if you're into um, theater at all. Uh, I am into theater. I'm into Denzel Washington, but I think... Was that the, um, what was that? I remember seeing the poster for it, but no, I didn't see it. So I went up to New York and watched that and, and Denzel uh, is Denzel. So um, to your point, like he comes out and he's this just magnetic figure. Yeah. And when you see him up close and on a stage, it's pretty incredible. I bet. But the reason I bring it up is the, sh the, it's an old, it was a spin on an old show and uh, it's basically about these drunks at a bar who are just having conversations and they're just having these conversations. But the conversations are honestly like pretty boring and pretty meaningless. And then Denzel okay. does like a 45 minute monologue or 30 yeah. minute monologue. I, I was like, it, it, it might've been less than that. It felt like 45 minutes, at least for me, they, they had three intermissions. This was like a three and a half hour show. And um, the acting was actually great, but the, co the conversations were kind of, meaningless and mm -hmm. the, mo the monologue i was like okay dude like we got it you just kept saying the same thing over and over again mm. so my question to you is what do you do when you're facilitating conversations between people that are sort of meaningless or when you have someone that just wants to do a monologue <laughs> well you know so with in the conversation operating system uh turn taking is the easiest thing what you're talking about is somebody holding the floor for too long and not yielding a turn and so a lot of facilitation patterns uh, give very specific, specific instructions for how turn-taking can happen. So there's a couple of things. One is, it's very simple. You just do a round and you say, here's time. Everyone gets five minutes to talk. And everyone's going to talk for five minutes and nobody can interrupt them. That's it. Or you say, there's a, um, a pattern called uh, one, two, four, all, or I used to call it think, pair, share. Uh, the best way to contain somebody who likes to talk too much is just to pair them up with someone else. And it's completely contained. Like one person is not having the best experience, but everyone else in the room is not being steamrolled by that person. And so that's honestly breaking up a, you know, 
if somebody's like, oh, so we're going to have this leadership group and it's going to be 15 people. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, strong talkers in the room. Like, how are you going to handle it? I'm like, it's not a problem. And they're like, really? It's not a problem. Like, this is not going to be a problem because I'm not going to have this big 15 person conversation where anybody can say anything. I'm going to either say, okay, everyone can talk for five minutes about this one specific prompt, or I'm going to pair you up and then get you into a group of four and then make you make a poster. And then we're going to talk about that poster. And that's a, so one group might like that strong talker might be like, Oh, this is much more interesting, but they can see. And I can say, that's really interesting, but we actually have three other groups that need to go and we only have 15 minutes for this section. And so we, it's an, it's a, it's making time the the cadence of the conversation move forward you're just like look there's time there's space it's giving people a chance to reflect and see like yeah you want to talk but everyone else here has something to say too and building in the structures to make that happen awesome well, i think that's a great place for us to stop and and respect your time and what i would love to do is just give you a platform or a megaphone to promote whatever it is you want to promote i know there's podcast there's book uh there's website there's work uh give us everything and and just share with the world what it is that you're up to well thank you very much i um you can obviously my podcast is the conversationfactory.com you can check that out we talk about conversation design that's all we talk about um, and on that po- on, on that website, you can also find, uh, you can sign up for my mailing list. I just finished a very strange book about design thinking and origami called The 32nd Elephant and the Paper Airplane Experiment. It's a series of four origami exercises that I use to help people get a hands-on experience with some of these mindsets. Um, I'm pretty proud of it because it's, it's honoring my teacher, Michael Schall, who is my, my mentor, my origami mentor when I was a little kid. So that, that book just came out and I'm, I'm working on a book about how conversations work. That should be coming out in the next year. Um, I did a pre-sale on it. So I, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely need to, uh, I'm working on the book every day. Like that's my, that's my big, my big job is uh, after having sold about 500 copies in the pre-sale, I now need to write the book. Um, that's the thing. So you can sign up for my newsletter and, uh, uh, and get some updates on that. That should be coming around the bend real soon. And social media? Oh, social media. I'm on Twitter at DA Stillman. Um, that's also me on Instagram. If you like to look at pictures of my uh, my food and Amsterdam, where I just was, those are, those, <laughs> that's where you can find out about those things. Awesome. Well, uh, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram intentional underscore performers. Uh, this has been fun. We, we had a great talk the first time we connected and, uh, I felt like that could have gone on for hours and I feel the same way right now, but, um, I appreciate the time and, uh, all the best to you going forward with the book and, uh, go by Daniel. He's always strange to describe. It's a weird book. book. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird book. That's okay. But, you know, Brian, I really appreciate the opportunity. These are my favorite things to talk about. You are a, a, a really lovely interviewer and you ask amazing questions. So it's actually super fun to talk to you about this stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. For me, I'm really into drawing. I'm not a great artist, um, but in my facilitation workshops, one of the things I teach people is to just sketch to, to like to sketch out the sessions that they're going to do, to storyboard them out, 
And so that's one thing I do a lot is I just sketch out of the workshops that I'm doing so that I can visualize them. I, I, I literally, it's like scene by scene, what's going to happen. Like it's a play and I look at it once I draw it out and I, I look at it, I'm like, where are the gaps? Like, do I believe it? Can I, can I convince myself that this is a smooth arc? And sometimes I look at it and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get them from here to here. Like there's actually a piece missing. And then I sketched again with that piece back in there. And so for me, um, visual thinking and uh, like getting it out of my head, it's not enough to just make an Excel spreadsheet or to make a PowerPoint deck. Like those, those pieces of information, those, those pieces are very important. At some point I make those, but for me, the storyboard is the most important component of just visualizing what I'm going to be doing.